today. Um, we're in chapter 18 and into chapter 19 on page 1114. If you're using the Bible there in the pew, page 1114, 15, and we're reading there. I'm going to begin reading at verse 23 of chapter 18. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the ways of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were twelve men in all. Over the last few weeks, I've been rereading a book that I think is one of the books that's most influenced me in the whole of my life. And I came across one of my favorite quotations uh, from the history of the church. The glory of God is man fully alive. That quotation or that uh, idea is credited to St. Irenaeus, a bishop from 2nd century Lyon. And what Irenaeus was saying was that there's no place on earth that you can see God more clearly than in a person full of his spirit. There's no better way to see God in the world than in a person who's alive with God's presence. It's quite a claim. And if it's true, then I think it raises some big questions for us. Certainly one big question. How do we create men and women like that? Actually, a better question is, how do we become men and women like that? So full of God's life that people around us see God's glory in us. I think part of the passage we've just read today helps us 
to think about that question. I'm going to have to be quick today. Although we read from verses 23 of chapter 18 down to verse 7 of chapter 19, I'm actually going to try and cover a chunk right down to chapter 19, verse 41. I do have it open in front of you, page 1115. I'm going to quickly outline the story, but then I'm going to go a bit deeper uh, to part of the story. In chapter 18, verse 23, we're told that Paul has spent some time at home, uh, his home church in Antioch, but also that he's gone back on the road. Uh, These transitions aren't marked out very clearly in in the Acts account, but this is the start of the third uh, missionary journey. So we have another slide, another map to show you. By now, everybody should know the the ancient uh, world pretty well, these uh, missionary journeys we've looked at. So he moves back through Galatia and Phrygia, modern-day Turkey. And what's he doing? He's going back to see the guys and encourage the guys whom he had first of all invited to follow Jesus. In chapter 19, verse 1, he arrives in Ephesus, and the remainder of chapter 19 tells us about what happens in Ephesus. He preaches, he does miracles, some people respond well, and others don't. The closing section of that chapter gives us an insight into the impact that the gospel has on the city. The closing part of chapter 19 It's incredible what happens in Ephesus. Because Paul's come and preached the message of Jesus, the whole economy changes. I think that's amazing. The way people make money in the city changes because of the Christian message. People who used to spend their money on idols and worshipping idols no longer do so. The place has changed. It got me thinking, what kind of a swing to Jesus Christ would it take in Belfast before it would change our economy? How many of us living, how counterculturally would it take before that consumer price index shopping basket was changed? To reflect our different spending patterns. As we move away from luxury goods and extravagant gadgets to extravagant care for the poor. I don't have time to talk about that today, but it did get me thinking. We've outlined the whole section. I want to spend just a few moments today, I don't have much time, to think about the passage that we've read today and go a little bit deeper there. If you look at those opening verses of chapter 19, we're going to focus there. Paul's arrived in Ephesus, and Luke tells us that he finds some disciples. At least that's what they looked to be or appeared to be. Paul must have had some concerns as he met these guys because he did something there that we don't read of him doing anywhere else, and that is he asks them some questions about their faith. He asks him a couple of questions. That we have them here on the screen. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What baptism did you receive? Paul's first question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they say. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, 
it seems likely that they had heard of the Holy Spirit. It would be almost impossible to hear about John the Baptist and his teaching, referring back as John did to the Old Testament and all its mentions of the Holy Spirit. Even in John's preaching, he talks about the Holy Spirit. So it seems unlikely that they've never heard of the Spirit. Here's, here's what's more likely. More likely is that they don't realize that the Spirit's for them. That they can have the very presence of the Spirit of God living on them. No, they say, we, we, we don't know that. These guys don't seem to know about Pentecost. They don't seem to know about the coming of God's Spirit onto his, his people, all those who believe in his Son, Jesus. They don't know that God's Spirit's for them. That God wants to pour his very life into them. Paul's second question. What baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they say. Well, if, if you've read the whole narrative, it's, it's not surprising to see how that might have been the case. If you skim back to chapter 18, verse 24, you'll see there that it talks about Apollos. He's an educated Jew. He came to teach the Bible in Ephesus. Seems a very able kind of a guy. And Luke tells us that he taught about Jesus accurately. But look at verse 25. Luke tells us that he knew only the baptism of John. We don't know whether these disciples we're meeting in chapter 19 are people who have sat under Apollos' teaching, but it kind of makes sense of the situation, doesn't it? If the teacher only knows of John's baptism, then his disciples, those who have followed his teaching, will only know that baptism too. Just for a second, what, what does that mean, the baptism of John? John the Baptist, as Di Woolridge uh, shared with us in his wee video earlier on, he said that people came before, that John came before Jesus to get people ready for Jesus. He called him the warm-up act. Part of his ministry was to, to call people to repent and to be baptized. Folks, baptism for John meant something different than it means for us. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to, to notice that. Baptism for John was uh, an initiation rite into the Jewish uh, community. That's what baptism meant in the days before Jesus. If a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, wanted to join the Jewish family, they were baptized. They were washed it was a way of symbolizing the cleansing that God gives his people. So what's so, so powerful about John's teaching is he turns to Jewish people and he says, you can be washed. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, yes, you are the people of God. But in recent times, you've been living so far from God. You've been living so much like the other nations around you, that you're every bit as much in need of a wash to be baptized as anybody else would ever be. So come, repent, and be baptized. That was John's baptism. By the way, all of that's brilliant. The idea that a person needs to turn around, that they need to be washed clean, 
All of that remains fundamentally important in Christian baptism. But it's not the end of the story. And that's what we're talking about today. These guys already had all of that. They understood all of that. But Paul wants more for them. A whole lot more than that. He wants them to have the thing that they have been missing so far. He wants them to come, in Irenaeus' words, fully alive. He wants them to be the people who, who show God's glory in Ephesus. I love the way he deals with that. Quite a serious misunderstanding here. What does he do? Does he charge in and say, fellas, let me show you how totally wrong you've got all of this? No. Takes them back to John and says, guys, it's great that you follow John. Now let's, let's follow where John was actually pointing. Verse 4, he says, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe in the one coming after him. That is Jesus. Whenever they heard that, whenever they heard that John was actually pointing beyond himself to Jesus, they immediately wanted to be baptized into Jesus. Submerged in Jesus Christ. That's the greater thing that Paul wanted them to have. Folks, for the last few moments today, I want to work out with you, if we can, what it means to be baptized into Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be baptized into Jesus Christ? Can a person finally become fully alive? Luke doesn't tell us in this passage what kind of a conversation Paul had with those disciples in Ephesus that day. But thankfully we can see it elsewhere in Paul's teaching. This theme that a person would need to be in Christ, I'm only just coming alive to it. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that. Do you know how many times Paul talks about it in his letters? 164 times. 164 times he says in some way or other that we're in Christ. So for example, 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old, gone, new has come. Turn with me for a second. Here we're going to finish. Colossians chapter 3, page 1184. Colossians 3, the opening verses, we get to the heart here of Irenaeus' idea that we can be fully alive. Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, when he appears, then you also 
will appear with him in glory. Paul is telling us that the way to be fully alive is to see how completely we're already identified with Jesus Christ. Christ has died. So have you. Christ has been raised. So have you. Very quickly. Paul says Christ has died and that we have died with him. This is quite simply the greatest truth I could ever, ever share with you. Do you know this? This is the essence of Christianity right here. The essence of Christianity isn't that we admire Jesus Christ or that we try to emulate him and copy him or even that we love him. All of those are brilliant things to do. But this is the heart of it. The gospel says that when we put our trust in Christ, we're in Christ. My life is hidden with Christ in God. It's amazing. The Bible teaches that everything that's actually true of Jesus is legally true of you and I. What do I mean by that? It means that you died. It means that God treats you as free from your sin as if you had died on the cross and suffered an awful torment for them. You're as free as if all of that had happened to you because it has, because it happened to him and you're in him. The Father looks at us and he sees Jesus. And we look at the Father and we say, receive me in his name. Think about it for a second this way. If the essence of sin is to substitute ourselves for God, to, to take ourselves and put ourselves in the place that only he rightly deserves then the essence of salvation is when God substitutes himself for us and puts himself in the place that we deserve. All of this has happened. I'm using the past tense. We're not waiting for this. This has happened. Christ has died and you if you're in him, have died with him. And you've been raised. This is where it gets just about too good to be true. That's why people don't believe it. We are raised with Jesus. What does that mean? It means when the Father looks at me or you, if you're in Christ, he sees not me, not you, but he sees his beautiful son that first Easter Sunday morning. That one who went through death, paid the penalty, but rose again. God looks on us as if we have lived a perfect life. Can you imagine that? You know what it's like 
what it's like to feel condemned by a friend, a colleague, your kids. He looks on us as though we had lived a perfect life because we're in Christ. And he did it for us. Folks, if you're looking for a metaphor to carry in your head, to, to maybe shape your heart a little bit, I offer you the image of Christian baptism. That's why I showed you that video, because we don't fully immerse people. Sometimes I wish we did. We die with Christ as we go under the waves and we rise in him a whole new person. Folks, we've been talking today about how a person can become fully alive, about how we can become increasingly the kind of people that Irenaeus talked about the glory of God is a, a man fully alive. It's, it's in this way. It's, it's as we're submerged into Christ. It begins here in our baptism, our dying, our rising with him. Folks, I, I appreciate this might feel like it's been a little theological today. I hope in the end somehow the importance of what I'm talking about has come through. Maybe you've never understood this before. Maybe you're like those disciples in Ephesus. They knew only the baptism of John. They knew that they could be forgiven their sins. They didn't know that God wanted to live in them by his spirit. And now they've been shown. Folks, if you've never understood that, today would be a great day to start to understand that. Maybe, maybe you've struggled all your life with what I'm talking about here today, and there's a different reason. It's not for lack of understanding. It's because you've understand it very well, understood it very well. It's because you realize that to die with Christ means to humble yourself. To say that there's something so bad in my life that I need, I need killed. That thing needs killed off. Today would be a great day to allow that death to self to happen. I'm going to guess, though, that there are some here today who struggle with this for another reason, and that's you struggle to believe that this could actually be true, that God could, could love us this much, that he could have this much in store for us, that Jesus really gave himself for us, that all God really wants is to inhabit us and for us to be his friends. Some of us really struggle to believe that. I know because I talk to you and you say that or some version of that to me. We're struggling to believe that this could be true. Go on. Try. Try today to see that this is what God has for you.
Let him draw you into Christ. Let him pour his, his spirit into you. Let him make you that person who's fully alive so that you'll become the thing you were made to be. Uh, a beacon of his glory in the world.